Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Rodcast. Today I'm very excited because we've got an extra special guest, Julian Evans, who is the proprietary partner and head of healthcare at Knight Frank. He advises on circa £12 billion of real estate transactions every year. He's a governor of Great Ormond Street and a trustee to several high profile charities. And beyond all that, he's also one of the few people on the planet to reach the summit of Mount Everest and and make it back to tell the tale. So thank you very much for joining me today, Julian. How are you? Very well, Rod. Nice to see you. Are you well? Very well, thanks. Yeah, apart from the weather, a good British British summer, but and we can't really go away anywhere, so we've got to enjoy it here. So, Julian, if we can start, really, you've got an amazing kind of CV in terms of what you're up to now do you want to give us a quick bit of intro as to your role and how you got to do it of course yeah I don't know if it's amazing but I'm, I'm certainly in a niche market uh, I'm, one, I'm one of the proprietary partners as you say for Knight Frank and we are surveyors and estate uh, agents we are the world's largest privately owned practice which I'm sounding corporate cool, I genuinely believe stands us apart from the competition because we're not beholden to shareholders 500 global offices, it's fantastic business, and the culture within the business is amazing for lots of different reasons. The healthcare team that I run is sat on the commercial side, and whilst we're surveyors, it's slightly misleading. If you ask anyone in the team, and we're absolutely market-leading, number one, uh, the boys and girls are business valuers. So we buy and sell anything that sounds like a healthcare business. It could be care home, nursing home, mental health facility, an acute hospital, children's day nurseries, pharmacies, veterinary surgeries, you name it. If it's a healthcare business, we will advise on it. So we sell the whole business, just as though, you know, if you owned a hotel, we do that. But also there's clearly the real estate element. And a lot of that is driven by leased assets or what we call fixed income. And within the space, there's probably 30, 40 different types of registration and businesses. So it's it's really exciting. It's not an obvious thing that, that springs to mind associated with property. And we're incredibly lucky, Rod, because we've got such a broad church of clients from private equity to pension funds, institutions, big US REITs, so on and so forth. So, yeah, we're lucky. We're, um, we're in a great sector. And you've been doing this since, is it 1994? And what, yeah. I mean, how did you get into it? Because like you say, healthcare is a bit of a, well, certainly back then was probably more of a niche than it is now. How did you, how did you go into that? Did you come up through the ranks of Knight Frank or did you start doing kind of concentrating on healthcare and then move, move over into it? It was a combination, Rod. My parents had some healthcare assets. So I understood care homes in Leicestershire. 
And then I went down to London to go and get chartered. Uh, and, and I worked for a very good practice that, that specialised in valuing license and leisure and healthcare. So alternative assets is often what they're called, but asset-backed businesses. And it was healthcare that I, that I absolutely wanted to go into. And as you say, I mean, the thing about healthcare is that it's becoming more accepted by the institutions and funds, but certainly 25 years ago, it was not a sexy sector to go into, but it's completely the reverse now because it's a highly defensive sector and there's an awful lot of appetite wanting to invest into it. Absolutely. And I think we'll go into a bit more detail on that in a sec. But before we do, do you just, I mean, you mentioned it there briefly. You gave us a quick rundown of the different types of healthcare. So it's everything from your private trusts, I guess, for the, for the NHS through to nursery schools. Are there any things in that bracket of healthcare that maybe some people might be surprised by? I know you said nurseries were in there. I would always associate that maybe with education. Is, it, is there anything else in there that maybe people might, might think automatically wouldn't go on healthcare and maybe something else? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, we focus purely on the private sector, not the NHS, because the NHS, the public sector is so incredibly slow mm. to deal with. It'd be difficult to monetize it, if, if I'm honest. But from a private sector perspective, it will be major clients that, that you'd know, such as Spire Hospitals or BMI, Bupa, Barchester, Four Seasons. What, what else would fall within that in, in, our, in our camp, in our team? If it has a CQC care quality commission registration we will advise on it and potentially if it's Ofsted so it could be where it's a special education needs school or it could be yeah I mean quite assets or product that your listeners might not be aware of might include funeral parlors it could include secure mental health facilities which in effect are very much just a a step down from prisons in certain instances so you you've got this full acuity curve and just on those, I know there were changes in the law because we, we were involved in, in this on a site actually a few years ago where the police, where if there was an issue with someone who was suspected of having mental health, typically the police would go and pick them up and take them to a secure unit. Now, secure units can also be police stations and hospitals. And then the law changed about police not only being able to pick people up if it was a actually associated with a crime and uh, then we had sort of the, quite a growing industry now of I know one business in particular that we were involved in that now picks up these people and takes them to I think they're called sort of uh, suite 163 suites or something like that where they are kind of um, held and checked over until they go maybe go somewhere else but I know the laws are changing all the time especially with mental health are you finding that the mental health side of, of the healthcare industry is, is growing quite rapidly, especially with all the everything in the news at the moment, the pandemic as well, having an effect on that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, uh, I think when you start talking, if you talk about care homes and place potentially placing loved ones into care settings, the likelihood is all of us are going to get to that position at some point. Yes, you're right. Uh, the, the aspect of mental health is it's real. So over the last 30 years, bed capacity within, the set ho- within hospitals, so that would capture both acute private sector hospitals, so Spire, Nuffield, BMI, but also within the mental health arena, such as Priory Hospitals and Elysium and, and Cambium, potentially. 
bed capacities dropped by almost 50%. In other words, we've dropped from 300,000 beds to 150,000 beds over the last 30 years. So it's a, it's a desperately deep subject matter. It's a, it's a political football. There's been a lack of investment by successive governments since Bevan founded the NHS. The reality is there hasn't been enough investment. We were running, I think you and I uh, spoke about this previously, but we were asked by Care England, which is the representative body for the private sector, social care sector, could we run track and trace when uh, the pandemic started? Because we've got the resource and, and the analyst. And the answer was yes, and we did that. And I, and I thought it was, I, I thought the sensationalism with, within certain areas of, of the press and the media was appalling. Uh, and the rhetoric was appalling, completely off message, frightening people. Yes, we had a, a very difficult pandemic to deal with. But talking about care homes being an area or place where you would send lambs to the slaughter was utterly wrong and ignorant because the boopers and the barchesters and lots of private uh, small group operators have been really, really experienced in dealing with infection control for 30 years. Nobody talks about DMV, which is diarrhea and vomiting, or the seasonal flu or norovirus, but they've been managing that for years. They've been excellent. My big concern right from the outset was around mental health because of the lack of investment into the sector. It's very opaque. People don't talk about it. And then, of course, alongside Project Nightingale, the private sector hospitals basically commandeered to support the NHS for, mm. for beds, for ICU beds, intensive care unit beds. And so lots of people, uh, and I'm sure you all know people, unfortunately, that were waiting for maybe some treatment around oncology or chemotherapy, in pretty serious stuff. That's all been delayed and, and kicked into long grass, and you've got... 4.5 million people waiting for, for surgery. And mental health is a big, big issue. Yeah, it's fascinating, really, and also quite depressing as well. In terms of going back then to discussing how the healthcare kind of assets have, been, have changed over maybe the last 20 or 30 years, how do they now typically fit into maybe an institutional and also an individual's invest, investment property portfolio? And how has that changed? And has COVID impacted those trends? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. So we always look at it in three different silos, Rod. From a healthcare perspective, you've, you've got primary care, which will be surgeries. Uh, I'm sounding really geeky now, but I love stats. Which is, um, so do I. Keep going. <laughs> There's about 10,500 surgeries in the UK and 60% is purpose-built, but 40% is that classic double bay-fronted Victorian-type property. Yeah. And you see a lot of dentistry that, that's also housed in, in similar real estate. So that's the primary care market. You've then got the care home market, which captures learning disability, young, physic- young physically disabled, acquired brain injury. So Care homes is very generic. It, it, it does capture broad, a broad sector in itself. It does. It's a big umbrella for lots of different types of um, registration. But there's twelve and a half thousand care homes in the UK that are sat in that silo, and around eighty-five percent of that stock is over forty years of age. Less than fifty percent have got on suites. And if you were to repurpose and/or build in or retrofit on suites it would cost around five billion so it's not, it's not going to happen and and these are and these are through because 
are these three changes that the CQC brought out, the Care Quality Commission brought out in the last few years, that are meaning that lots of these kind of care homes are coming now on the market because the cost of retrofitting in certain aspects is, is just almost too much in, in, certain, in certain areas. And, and we're seeing a lot of care homes maybe being repurposed at the moment into residential or even social housing or supported living, things like that. So this is massive. This is absolutely massive. We've, we've, I've been messaging this for the last four or five years, honestly. We've got a national bed crisis by 2030, 20, you know, that's eight years off, nine years off. 25% of the population, one in four will be over 65. And we have got nowhere near enough inward investment. And you look at the, the quality of the social care real estate, it is not fit for purpose. In 2000, the Care Standards Act in, insisted on certain physical standards and a lot, of the, a lot of the care homes couldn't meet those new standards. So classically, it's the 28-bed old rectory, three miles outside of yeah. I don't know, Lincoln, wherever, and it forced them to close. The, the government then realised they've made a big mistake and they relaxed it. So if you are seeing care homes close uh, and be used for alternative use, that's more likely because of COVID and they haven't got these Hi everyone, I just wanted to quickly cut in with a message from our fantastic sponsor, Brickflow. For most property developers, obtaining development finance for their project is not something they look forward to. There are dozens of lenders, but most developers only know a few well enough to approach. Every lender will offer a different loan size and loan price on each project. And by only approaching a handful of lenders, we all know there's almost zero chance of getting the best loan. But getting quotes from every lender would take weeks and months. Brickflow is the UK's first comparison site for development finance, designed to save you time and money. In the same way most people search for their car insurance, Brickflow allows developers to compare more than 30 of the UK's best development lenders in seconds. Brickflow filters out the lenders that are less likely to lend to you and just leave the ones that should. They organise them in a clear way, providing estimates of what each lender will lend and at what price. Applying couldn't be simpler. There is one application process for all of our lenders. Build your project appraisal on the platform and select which lenders you would like to approach. Lenders get a clear and precise presentation about you and your project, allowing them to make quick and reliable decisions. They submit their best bid for your project and you decide which lender you want to work with. The whole process is quicker, easier and lets you concentrate on the things you're best at. Brickflow. Development financing clicks, not weeks. Search brickflow.com today. Let's get back to the show. They haven't had the economies of scale to be able to spend the money on PPE, agency costs, and a host of other economic factors. Mm. And that's basically forced the closure of, of a lot of homes. So our prediction is that 3,500 homes are at serious risk of closure over the next three to five years. Wow. Then, then just to compound it even further, so if anybody... Actually, when you look at it from a commercial optic, it's a no-brainer to invest in the sector. It's, it's a straight supply and demand. The big issue now is supply chains, raw materials, partly because of Brexit, partly because of the pandemic and the cost of labour. And then on top of that, development finance is increasingly expensive. So to build a brand new, future-proof 60-bed care home, and you're right, COVID has made everybody think more about outdoor space, fresh air, 
different types of ventilation. You've got ESG, environmental social governance on there. Should there be balconies? Should there be terracing? All these sorts of good natural things is playing a part in shaping care settings. But whichever way you cut it, you're about 10 million quid to build a care home. And the gestation period for it to get to break even is probably around two, two and a half years. That's a lot of capital. And if you can't get the development finance, unfortunately, the landscape's looking... Julian, isn't that, though, the same in almost all real estate industries? And are you looking at it from the point of, yeah, it's a lot of capital to put in, but compared to what it was... But then if we look at the other investment opportunities, they're all a lot of capital to put in for maybe not, not as big a return as we were once getting when you look at kind of the, the security of income that the healthcare industry is likely to bring over that period of time. I just kind of think quite often we, we're comparing these investment opportunities to what was happening rather than what is happening and obviously things are expensive now when we've got a lot of capital flying around and I know you mentioned kind of development finances is also expensive but it's also expensive if you were to build I don't know a leisure park or whatever it is or or how or how or residential or is it that with with healthcare it's even more for for any reason I think to be honest, I get your point, but I think it's been, there's a systemic problem of investment and inward investment and there has been for probably 25, 30 years. So if you take another asset class, which is not dissimilar in terms of hotels, because fundamentally it's about bedrooms, average daily rate, occupancy, cost, and the profit that it will make, the, the UK social care arena is at least 25 years behind branding the quality of the senior management teams the infrastructure, the customer care. The real estate is equally as poor. It's that classic 1960s, 1970s, either flat roof type local authority school type building, or it's a period. And you sort of opened it up, Rod, really. There's so many different types of registrations now. A lot of these assets are absolutely not fit for dementia care. Mm. The dark corridors, they've got split floor plates. So no, I would say, and you will have seen it with the NHS, there's a lot of NHS hospitals, that are big Victorian properties. I mean, no wonder people pick up the press or pre-COVID, the Daily Mail running MRSA spreading around hospitals. They can't sanitise and clean these buildings. They're not fit for purpose. And then often when you walk around the back of them, they've got porter cabins that have got uh, mammograms in and CT scanners. It's the investment compared to Italy, Spain, Germany, the Nordics, we are significantly behind the curve. So I don't... I'm not sure. Is, is, that, is, that a, is that a political issue or is it simply, is that private investment as well coming in? Is it both public and private? Because you mentioned obviously the, the hospitals, a lot of them I'm guessing are, are, are part of the NHS. Is, is, it, is it both private and, and public? Because I'm seeing quite a few kind of niche, I don't know, certain care homes that we've looked at and you look at some of the pricing. I mean, we looked at one, albeit it was in Chelsea in London, but the pricing, I just couldn't get over some of the pricing. And you start to think, wow, okay, for a select few that can afford it, this will be a really nice facility. And obviously there's certain private institutions that are putting the money in, but do you think it's just endemic across the whole the whole public and private industry or is it or is it more so on the public side i, I think I, I suspect i know that facility that you saw and it's probably on the king's road 
London's London's London uh, on lots of different levels, and it's it's completely dislocated and polarized from the rest of the UK, as you know. So, look, I think the answer is it's both both uh, political and investment risk that has dissuaded inward investment over the years. The government has not deployed. Ultimately, we've got to pay high taxes. Yeah. We have to pay. Our national insurance is not covering. We're not even standing still in terms of the quality of the care, mm-hmm. the training of nurses. We've got a we've got a, a shortfall of forty thousand nurses in the UK. So there's, there's a lot of stuff behind it. And notwithstanding Jeremy Hunt, pretty much most health ministers stay in post for twelve to eighteen months. Mm-hmm. They don't want that job. It's a poison chalice. If you look at the German model, you know they have what they call a sick pay. I think they pay almost an extra two percent on top of taxation. Well, there'd be uproar here in the UK if that was to happen with the electorate. So very rarely is it tackled. But the pendulum's swinging, Rod, because we get an aging population, the baby boomers coming through. Yeah. That will be the electorate that, that the governments will be, or the government and or the opposition will be playing to, to get their vote going forward. So they, I think they're going to have to start to look at it. Um, and just in terms of kind of going back to how healthcare sits in a portfolio. So traditionally you might have had a real estate portfolio that had kind of your retail as your, as your bond kind of like performer, your, your office could be uh, fairly um, secure income, but a bit more cyclical. And then you might have your alternatives, like it could even be student accommodation, even industrial was there. And, and that's now changed a lot. So what we're seeing is retail is a lot more alternative. It's a lot more high risk. We're seeing that industrial is now, a bit more like the retail was is acting like the very secure income where, where does healthcare now fit into that kind of property investment portfolio that institutions might be looking at so again you, you, you touched on it a moment ago so there's a few key things there one ironically brexit has probably worked in our favor the the yield compression uh, on gilts and and the, and the bond markets has driven yield compression we call it fixed income if it's a leased asset Yep. then you can benchmark it against other commodities. And that's that's ultimately what the fund managers will be doing at a legal and general and an Aviva. Yep. Another big driver behind, well, two big drivers behind all of this is that the average unexpired commercial property lease is only two years uh, and the funds want long-dated income, 30, 35-year yep. leases. So what, healthcare is probably tracking all risks uh, and return it will be right up there close to logistics and data centres. And it will be a photo finish between uh, healthcare and, and maybe student property. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's not an alternative asset class. It no. should be a core asset class. But you're right, there has been a reweighting of allocation within the funds and, and they are getting educated about healthcare. Well, and it's funny because the way I look at it is things like student and a lot of the build to rent assets that are coming out are now being seen by a lot of these funds as long-term income, albeit the effort involved with student accommodation and the asset management of it all is a lot more intensive for those residential assets than it would be for, for the healthcare because obviously there'll be operators within the healthcare. So I always find it a bit funny when those yields start looking similar because I know which one I would prefer, and that that would be the healthcare one, especially if we've got sort of twenty-five to thirty-five year year terms on it. So yeah, I, I just find find that all very interesting how it's all kind of changed over time. And again, I'm just what I'm getting from this is there's massive opportunity in the healthcare sector as well. For well, 
that there are and there is it's a fra- it's a fragmented market it's still very much what we call a cottage industry ma and pa mm-hmm. so out of the t- i'll focus on the care home market rather than uh, the acute and, and the primary market but actually the dynamics and characteristics are almost identical within the care home arena there's about 48 480,000 beds and around 120,000 beds operated by the major providers so in other words 75% of the stock is Mr and Mrs Evans with three homes in Northamptonshire or Mr and Mrs Patel with two in Derbyshire wherever but but it's but it's a fragmented market so the problem is the majority of the assets aren't of institutional grade and you can't find the covenant strength. The only covenant strength that would be on par with an Amazon, for example, or a John, yeah. would be, there's a handful, Booper, Anchor Hanover, Methodist Homes, and that's it. And we saw in, in 2008, 2009, in fact, it was 2010 when it actually closed, uh, when it went into administration, was Southern Cross, which was around 725 care homes and when that collapsed it really put the investment market off investing into leased because in other industries we're seeing uh, a lot more risk being taken by investors and we've talked we've talked already about kind of the the yield compression there with gilts with all these other asset classes much kind of higher values and, and, and lower yield compressions are you seeing that investors are now starting to think okay well the covenant strength isn't quite where we want it to be where where those boopers are but actually if we can package up some of these mum and pop sort of three care homes here three care homes from another we can we can start to there's there's a bit more room for the middleman to come in package these and then in tranches of maybe i don't know 10 or 20 or however however much they need to become institutional grade and then sell them off to the funds is, is that starting to happen as it is in some of the other sectors yeah so there's there's been a few funds that have taken a first move advantage over the sector and that would be octopus impact elevation and target mm-hmm. and i guess collectively they own around a billion of assets that sort of time okay. but they're all future-proof homes so fantastic real estate in excess of physical standards excellent communal areas and the operators can be very much more a, a family type offering but because you haven't got a, a annuity grade covenant or 5a1 covenant it just won't work for work for the institutions but there are dedicated healthcare funds and REITs absolutely and do you see that changing over the next few years do you, do you see more appetite for that coming in or not 100% is happening. Yeah. Ironically, COVID's accelerated the likes of Cofinimo, Belgium REIT into the UK, Corion, who we also advised. There's another two REITs, that, that are European REITs, that are about to enter, enter the UK market because they can see there's, there's, there's a desperate inward investment programme that's needed here. And they, they see it as a fantastic opportunity. So yes, there will be more funds. And yes, that paucity of long-dated leases across the other commercial asset classes, I think it's going to drive increasingly more capital uh, in, into the sector. And we need it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you've almost kind of answered it already, but I've got this question, which is, what should landlords and investors have their eye on for the future in terms of healthcare and real estate? Well, I think we're both relatively commercial people. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a surveyor. But the thing about healthcare which I think you need to be, one needs to be really careful about is 
it's a people's driven business and it's about care. Absolutely, the real estate's an imperative, but it, you can't lose sight of the quality of care. That's the critical thing. I think it is what normally happens with recessions, if, and if we're floating increasingly that way, and it tends to be 10-year cycles ever since the Second World War, the first thing that happens generally with the landlords is that there's either been a rent cut or the cost of debt's gone up, their LTV, the loan-to-value ratios are getting squeezed, and ultimately they're not getting the same profit driven out of the facility. Always what happens is there's capex starvation and a lack of investment and so I think from a landlord's perspective, if they want to be able to, what it needs to be is a partnership with, with, the, care, with the care tenants. And it needs to be a partnership to be ensuring that the building's fit for purpose. And it's a building, it sounds a little bit emotional and a bit wishy-washy, but in order to be able to recruit people into a tough sector, and you'll know, we've all been there where you like going into a building or a piece of real estate and you think, wow, this is fantastic. You're proud to work there. It's nice to work there. It's got to be a nice environment, yeah, to what you want the environment to be in. I've always thought if I was going to work in a supermarket, I'd want to go into a Waitrose. They're the best. Fantastic. And so landlords, I think, just need to be incredibly mindful that this is not a sector uh, that you can scrimp and scrape and, and afford for capex starvation to start to filter in. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. We're hearing a lot about a lot of kind of smaller investors jumping onto almost a bandwagon, really, of supported living and assisted living schemes. Certainly, as a developer, I'm seeing an awful lot of these kind of marketed towards towards me. Do you see this as, as a justified kind of trend? Or do you think there's going to come a point where all of these developments under construction increase demand beyond the supply or increase the supply beyond beyond the demand that's actually there? But I guess I can sure. caveat that quickly with we've talked about the demand and how huge it is for certain certain parts of the healthcare, but maybe kind of touching on legislation and the quality, maybe like what we discussed with the CQC, maybe that could be a barrier. I don't know. But yeah, potentially. So supported living and at the moment, Rod, we've got no clear demarcation on the different types of asset classes in America. They call care homes senior living. Mm-hmm. Over here, we call them care homes. And actually, we call often independent living, close care apartments or supported living type of senior living. So look, I think there's lessons to be learned from the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis in 2008, 2009. McCarthy and Stone, they are warden controlled over 55 residential housing, their apartment. Uh, they went on a very accelerated uh, growth and uh, development plan and ultimately paid, paid the price going into administration. So I think you're right. Wherever the postcode or the location is, you, you need to be absolutely thorough in terms of due diligence and feasibility studies around the, the, the demands and the demographics in, in those locations. Supported living is and independent living units is just another form of housing. But as, as we've got an ageing population percolating through the baby boomers, the 1950s, it's becoming more on topic and trend. It's just a new narrative. I, I think that there's absolutely a place for it in the market. And there are different types of structures as well, which can include services for, for vulnerable people as well and, and different types of contracts and, and leases. But inevitably, it will definitely be a, a growth market. Because you know, the other thing that we've got wrong, sorry, to go back to your point on mental health, no. it wasn't one flew over the cuckoo's nest here in the 60s and 70s. 
but they were very institutional assets and and actually a lot of the, a lot of the landlords or not even just the landlords the operators were very happy to keep that keep that client base in the home because you know that they were generating a profit or an EBITDA out of it that that's got to be wrong so what should be happening is those individuals with learning disability or supported living or getting to the point of supported living people should be going through rehabilitation and they should be being upskilled on a hub and spoke model so that they can live independently in supported living so that they they feel they've got the right well-being that independence of working and feeling part of the community not stuck within a care setting so supported living is actually it, it's incredibly important from a societal perspective and do you see that planning authorities need to take kind of a bit more emphasis on this so every now and again we see that i mean i i did a scheme a while ago where one of the conditions on the planning was that you weren't the only people that could live in some of the units had to be over the age of 55 do you see more conditions coming into local authorities planning whereby there is an element for supported living for care for elderly accommodation and things like that is that one way that could potentially help i i think again it's fragmented you can get a completely different response rod from lots of different local authorities some have a focus on younger adults some don't understand it if i'm brutally honest that they see it as a a C3, it's still a residential C3 over 55, Mac Stone, board and control. They don't really understand it. Well, there's the old like C, what was it, C3B or something, or C2B that they, they used to do where people would get around that kind of change of use to not get it into a care home to keep it under the residential banner so they wouldn't have to get a change of use and then and then they could, could then offer some form of supported living without maybe a care provider actually staying there or being there 24 hours a day and things like that so i think there's there's a few a few things in the past that have, have have been kind of maybe exploited a little bit by investors and and possibly developers as well but it's yeah it's, it's, it's it is very fragmented borough to borough and council to council as to as to what what it is that that one is needed and two is is practical because like you say to to build a, a new state-of-the-art care home in Aberdeen isn't, isn't, is going to be very, very difficult because however you look at it, the cost of materials, the cost of labour is, is probably going to be more than, than, than your payback's going to be over a very long period of time. So is there any grant money ex- available for developers and investors looking at some of these things? Can they be maybe forward-funded by some of these REITs that you mentioned? What what financial motivation is there in some of those lower capital value areas? That's the challenge because the local authority baseline fee rates for supported living or housing benefit is derisory in certain localities. So Liverpool, really bad, I'm afraid. Parts of the West Midlands are poor, up in the northeast as well, Newcastle. Those local authority fee levels are nowhere near high enough to care or look after people wherever you are on the on the on the on the spectrum. So, it's, so your question's on topic because the majority of the capital is chasing the self-funding market. Yeah, if you can afford to pay eleven, twelve hundred pounds a week average weekly fee into a facility, they're targeting investors are targeting that demographic because 
Of course what, 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 what will happen is, is that you could go with the cost of spiralling raw materials, you could go and build up in, in Liverpool and, and actually even if you had a lease to the local authority or housing association, it could well be that the investment value of that, that building is lower than what it's cost you to build. And that certainly would be the case on lots of different types of care settings as well. So most of the capital, that north-south divide is very stark in, in, in certain circumstances. And I think it's a massive, we've got a big, big moral ethic, ethical issue kicked into the long grass and it's, it'll all unravel in the next five to 10 years. It'll become really obvious where those poor socioeconomic locations have suffered the most because of a lack of investment and the lack of available funding. And of course, I mean, this sounds really dull, doesn't it? As though it's a bit of a dark conversation, but there will be local authorities and there have been, without necessarily naming them, that with their pension funds have invested heavily yeah. in, into retail and are close to going bust. And so there's going to be some real challenges, I think, over the next two to three years. So it's that old mantra, Rod, however sophisticated you want to cut this, location 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 is absolutely critical on so many different levels i mean you've kind of you've touched on a lot of risks already but what would you say is the biggest risk to healthcare real estate currently and and what can investors and landlords and operators do to mitigate against it the the biggest risk it depends on the type of registration and and the type of setting the more complex the needs for the for the residents and the clients potentially the high risk because as yeah, I said, this yeah. is a people's business and people make mistakes. And, you know, we've seen it. I've seen it with panorama exposés, etc., whistleblowing, uh, and especially with social media today. If you've got a, a slightly feral operator who's, who, or somebody that, that isn't uh, performing around best practice and, and care quality standards, very quickly it can destroy value as, as, a, as a landlord. So I think it's properly understanding the tenant and the registration and the type of healthcare facility that it is. That has to be one of the key things. But the other thing is, and maybe I didn't explain it particularly well earlier, is this is the gestation period, especially for care homes, well, actually hospitals, but stick with care homes. If it's a 60 bed, if you've got a planning uh, development site for 60 beds, oven ready to go, best will in the world, by the time you built it, it's yep. 18 months, practical completion, registration in place, then it will take around another 18 months to fill it. Yeah. Before you get to stabilisation or maturity, it's, it's almost five years. And your break-even point is, is around three years in total. Now, to have the finance to be able to do that is, is quite a challenge. So the cost of capital is starting to go up. So I think it's diligence on every level in terms of supply and demand, the operator and, and competition as well, actually a lot of moving parts there and just on that example of care homes is there is there a minimum bed size or minimum amount of beds even that you think it becomes unviable if it's any less than that for for care homes it absolutely depends on the registration if, it, if it's if it's learning disability younger adults for example then the care setting shouldn't really be more than 10 beds per per asset as uh, quite specialist If it's a vanilla residential care home, nursing home, the economies of scale work best between 60 and 70 beds. I have seen, and there are facilities in excess of 100 beds in the UK, but they really only work in certain locations. And very crudely, 
whatever the number of registration or beds that you have within the care setting is what you're going to require full time. So if it's full time in terms of staffing. So if it's a 60 bed home, you're likely to need 60 full time staff. And that can be a challenge because, you know, if they're on national living wage, it might not be that if you go and build a care setting, your immediate competition, you might think, could be a boob Barchester, one of the big corporates. That's not necessarily so. It could be it could be John Lewis. It could be uh, a supermarket that's paying possibly a better rate and a different environment, which isn't vocational or as vocational. So employment and labour is always uh, a real challenge for care settings. But and especially at the moment where we're seeing kind of people, I don't know, McDonald's offering sign-up bonuses to, to come on board. And, it, and it's very difficult for people kind of... Uh, as well with qualifications that are needed and, and, and people to make, make that choice to go into certain industries because uh, with, all, with all the various kind of degrees you can do these days and online ones and things like that, it can, it can be quite difficult to maybe attract the right staff towards that industry. Well, agency costs suddenly came down Q3, Q4 last year because we were collecting the weekly data of something like 80% of the corporate market. Okay. National occupancy within care, testi- care settings remained at s- the lowest point it got to was 79%, vis-a-vis the hotel regional market, which was lower than 10%. Yep. So all of a sudden, there was a natural uh, labour opportunity there, workforce for the care settings to draw upon. So they did, which meant the agency costs then really came down for care settings. But as you rightly say, it doesn't matter where you go, Norfolk, London, West Midlands, you know, you're seeing adverts now and, and posters for pubs, restaurants and, and license and leisure because they've got, they've got a lack of staff. And, and anecdotally, the other thing that I was being told by the majority of our operators that because of Brexit, which last year, uh, a lot of Polish, Eastern European and in particular Portuguese went back to their country of origination. And so we've got a, we have got a paucity of, of labour within care settings and the leisure and hospitality arena at the moment mm. and do you think there's a grassroots issue there with kind of attracting people into the into the industry so you know, coming from from school is there enough emphasis on getting people qualified or is it just trying to i don't know like you say get get people from abroad to come in and, and take up these jobs well it's, yeah i think it's, again it's a, it's, a, it's a combination rod because pay has always been an issue salaries has been an issue i don't think there's been enough education and awareness about potential careers so education around that there are entities like the prince's trust that are trying to highlight and invest to career pathways but as i said earlier we've got a, we've got we've got a deficit of 40,000 rgns that's registered nurses at the moment it's a Big, big problem. And, you know, clearly with COVID and in fact, they started to relax CBS checks and and so on and so forth. But a lot of nurses come from Africa and the Philippines and they've not been able to fly over here. And so so it's, it's it's a big problem at the moment. The sector has to help itself as well. There has to be more investment from the operators into the staff with apprenticeships and culturally demonstrating that there can be a clear defined career path as well definitely julia that's all been fantastic but i couldn't possibly leave you without asking you about going up everest why did you do that and what was it in aid of and can you just give me the highlights and the and the most challenging parts of it 
in a nutshell, because it will bore you senseless, I'm trying to complete something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So that's climb, walk to the North Pole and South Pole and climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. So almost there. I've just got one more mountain to do. Long story short, it all kicked off with a mate of mine called Matt Hampson, who um, is now quadriplegic from a rugby uh, scrum accident at Franklin Gardens in Northampton when he was training for the England and the 21 team. They were supposed to be playing Scotland in one Saturday in 2005, and Matt's just uh, an unbelievable inspiration. He set up the Matt Hampson Foundation, and that now uh, is there to help other beneficiaries that have had sporting spinal catastrophic injury. So that's, that's been the driver. You know, something like Everest, t- talking about diligence, it took me 15 years before I felt I was at the right level to do that. Yes, I was doing it for Matt, but also I was doing it out of ego because you've got to have it. You've got to be confident. You're, you know, you're a sportsman. You've been there with the rugby. You've got to be pretty selfish and focused about it. We were unlucky in 2019. It was the second deadliest season since 1996, uh, notwithstanding the earthquake in 2015. Uh, in 96, I think 15 people died. And on our attempt on May the 23rd, 2019, 12 people died. We lost a guy in a sister team with us and I think if I'd have read what I saw in the paper given my cynicism around British media I would have thought they were just big sensational but I saw at least six maybe seven bodies and so yeah it was pretty pretty brutal really brutal because of the because of the weather conditions and then I think do you know what I think I was talking about this um, last week Uh, I actually think I possibly had PTSD for about four or five months afterwards, because it just didn't compute what had happened. So it was a it was a funny one, Rod. You know, I was delighted to get it get it done, and I did choose the, the more technical, hard north side through Tibet because there'd be less people on on the north side than there would be the south side. Uh, south side is the one where you saw the the, the uh, long queues, and it's cheaper, so more people. And I just wanted agility. I was one on one with with my western guide and an amazing. Sherpa called Lakpa, and we were pretty. We were a pretty good team, actually. Wow! So please, please to tick that box. But it, it was pretty harrowing if I think about it now. God, I bet. Well, absolutely amazing achievement. Incredible. I know, I had no idea about about kind of what 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 you went through in order to to kind of get up there. So fantastic, Julian. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much for coming on and giving up your your time to discuss. Is there anything else that you think the audience have missed or anything you want them to know about healthcare or what you do maybe that we haven't touched on? No, I don't think so. I think, I think you've given me a lot of airtime there. So uh, hopefully that's helped. I mean, clearly, if anybody would like any pro bono advice or chat, do, do, uh, do reach out. I think I would just underscore and caveat that if healthcare is something you want to invest in, then just ensure that you're doing your diligence to, to the utmost. But once you lift up that bonnet, it's one of those emotive subject matters that is tangible to all of us. It really is, either through family, friends, or primary care for your immediate family. It touches all of us in our lives. So actually, when, when you get under it, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've, I've really, really enjoyed it and opened up a lot of kind of, a lot of thought-provoking ideas in my head about, about opportunities and, and, and things to be wary of. So yeah, thanks so much for that. And I hope to, hope we can uh, catch up again soon. Sounds good, Rod. Good to see you. And you. Cheers.